Thank you, choir, for that precious reminder of a great God who is worthy of all praise. Would you join me as we come before our God in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you that we can praise you in song, in life, in deed. Praise be to you, God, that from all eternity you have been preparing a time and a place such as this that we would come together to worship the living God who has made himself known through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to you. And God, we thank you that you're a God who does indeed prepare. You prepare our hearts, you prepare our circumstances, you prepare our situations in life in order that we might know you more dearly and deeply to know your love and to honor you more fully. We give you praise for that, our Father, and we pray that tonight would be a night where that is culmination of your preparation, that we would realize this is not simply another activity we participate in, but it's an activity, it's a time, it's a night that you have prepared for us. Oh God, make us hungry to hear. We spend so much of our time preparing for so many other things. But God, would you even now, by your Holy Spirit, cause us to be prepared, to hear, to hunger and thirst for the truth of your word, that we might see Jesus even more clearly than ever before. We might know him more fully. We might desire to honor him more richly in thought, word and deed. And Father, we thank you that your tender spirit knows even the affairs and needs of everyone in this room, even tonight. Some are weary, some are broken, some are hungry. Father, would you apply not only the reading, but the preaching of your word. Let your spirit indeed be the one who soothes that soul, who brings hope to the hopeless who brings forgiveness to the weary and broken and backslidden. God, do that work that only you can do that you have prepared before the foundation of the world. And we commit this precious night to you in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading tonight comes from John's Gospel, focusing on the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Tonight we're looking at chapter 6 of John's Gospel, looking at verses 35 through 40. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him 
should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Do keep your Bibles open then at that passage we just read together. I wonder if you have a problem between, in, uh, with the gap between what Christianity promises and what it delivers. What I mean is this. Have you heard the offer of answers and found only more questions? Have you come having heard a claim that it would give you rest and found only turmoil? Have you come thinking that somehow or other coming to Christ or coming to know Christ would bring you resolution, but in fact it seems to have created only tension? You have a problem with the gap between what Christianity promises and what it apparently delivers. This was the problem with these people we're reading about here in in John chapter 6. They'd seen him do something. They'd heard stories. Others of them had heard stories, and they'd come to join the crowd that was swelling around the Lord Jesus. They'd, They'd heard that others had been fed by him. Many of them were there at that time, and they had been fed. Their stomachs had been full the day before. But this is another day. This is the day after. Now they're coming looking for him, and frankly, they haven't had anything to eat all day. Their stomachs are not full anymore. And they remembered the story of Moses in the wilderness. They remembered that Moses had given the children of Israel back in their past history manna. And the manna had appeared every morning for 40 years. Every morning they'd gone out and collected the manna and kept the manna in the desert. Those people didn't just have a miracle for one day in their life. They could talk about to their children and their grandchildren... Those people had a miracle every day in their lives. They were fed in the desert by Moses. And now they come to Jesus. And they're in effect saying to the Lord Jesus, Well, if you really want us to see and believe, if you really want us to follow you, if you want us to take you as seriously as we take Moses, you have to do something at least as well as Moses did. You need to commit more signs. We want signs every day. We want signs like yesterday's sign. We want you to feed us every day. What these people are saying actually to Jesus is this. Our discipleship is contingent on your satisfying our demands. We will follow you, Jesus, if you meet our need, if you satisfy our desire, if you answer our questions, if you give us resolution to our conflicts, if you do those things, if you satisfy us at those levels, then we'll follow you, Jesus. Maybe you come into the same category this evening. You say to the Lord Jesus, Not perhaps in these words, but effectively in your attitude. If you're alive, then I want you to solve this problem that I'm facing. If you are real, then I want you to resolve this issue that I have between faith and science. Or I want you to resolve this matter I have, this 
controversy I have with God between what his moral demands are and what my moral desires are. Do you know what I'm saying? We come to God and we want God to resolve our emotional, our intellectual, our personal issues. We want, for example, to say to God, I I want to follow you and I want to follow the Lord Jesus, but I don't want the opprobrium that that, that goes along with that in our current culture. Don't want to be marginalized by the culture. I want to be able to hold my head up high. I want it to be a matter of kudos that I follow Jesus. I wonder if you're living with the gap between what Christianity promises and what it delivers. What we learn from this passage is that people who come to Jesus thinking like that and feeling like that are not going to be happy with Jesus' answers. In fact, the answers that Jesus gives to these people makes them even more dissatisfied with him as time goes by. Let me recap on the situation. They've come looking for food. And instead of talking food, something better than manna, better than the manna bread or or anything like that, what, what Jesus talks to them about is the bread from heaven. You can work that one out for yourself. Bread from heaven. Bread from heaven, and they, they kind of sussed in their minds that that didn't sound as if he was talking about real food or real bread or something you could put jam on or, or, or butter on or, or whatever. And they chose to ignore what he was talking about and bring him back to the subject. They were saying to him, we, we don't really want to talk about what you're talking about, this bread from heaven. That sounds a bit ethereal and otherworldly. That, that doesn't sound concrete and and firm and edible and available and now that that sounds very much in the future or in another realm of reality altogether we want to talk about what we came to talk to you about jesus and that was you fed us yesterday what are you going to do for us today that was their issue they even quoted scripture you know it was Moses gave us manna, and he did it for 40 years. Every day for 40 years, he fed them bread from heaven. And so Jesus starts by contradicting them. He contradicts them by saying to them, it wasn't Moses that gave them the manna. God gave them the manna. All Moses did was distribute it. What you really need is not the bread you eat, but the gift of God who is staring you in the face. And still they went back to the issue of food. And they said to him, thinking in purely materialistic terms, there in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread. And so when you get to verse 35, you see that Jesus sees through their inadequate thinking. He he wants to give them the true bread from heaven that he's talked about back in verse 32. That was an emphatic statement that he has used before and would use again. True bread. As he talked about true light in chapter 1, or true worshipers in chapter 4, or God being true in chapter 7 and again in 17. And as he talked about judgment being true judgment in chapter 8. Or as he did in contrast to Israel, which was the vine of God, he calls himself 
the true vine in chapter 15. He is the genuine bread. He is the real article. He is what you really need. And the manna in the desert was pointing forward to a sustenance that would last not for 40 years, but for 40 billion years and counting. And here's his claim. It is not something you can pick up and that you can put into your mouth. It is a person for, listen to him, for the bread of God is he personally, he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I want you to run with me here. As you notice, first of all, Jesus states his premise. They say to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus replies to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here is the first formal great I am statement in John's gospel. I am. Ego, I me, I, I am, Jesus says. He is saying that he and he alone can give the satisfaction that they seek. Satisfaction that never needs to be replaced or augmented by any other elements. That he, he alone, is our solution, the solution to our need. That he, he alone, satisfies that part of our being that nothing else ever reaches. That he, he alone, satisfies the thirst of our soul for ultimate reality to get out of ourselves and into the person of God. That He and He alone can satisfy the hunger of our hearts so that we are able to say, having Him, all I need in Him is found. All I need in Him is found. Jesus is taking up one of the great prophecies of Isaiah the prophet, in chapter 55 of Isaiah, where the great invitation is given to men and women in these terms, Come, everyone, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. They're free. Here, come, take them. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear to me. Come to me. Hear, hear, listen. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And here is Jesus, the covenant Messiah who has come. Here is the one who is 
the epitome. He is the, the nexus. He is the fulfillment. He is the one who is the standing flesh and blood representative of the steadfast, sure love of David that God had for David and the promise he made to David that David would have a descendant who would be the Messiah who would come in an everlasting covenant with God to bring men and women into life. And here Jesus is claiming this, that he is in himself the heart delighting soul refreshing joy producing life inducing all embracing eternally satisfying life in himself i am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger whoever believes in me shall never thirst and when we come to him using the language of Isaiah, we find that it's free. There is nothing to barter with, nothing to bargain with. It is free. This satisfaction is guaranteed, and it's free. And it's not something to waste your life on. Rather, it's something to delight in. When we hear, when we hear the good news, we come to Him and our souls Lived. You notice this. One of, the, one of the elements of this teaching in the text that scholars have noticed is a, a reference back to the wisdom literature and the idea of wisdom in the Old Testament. And in the wisdom literature, people are often invited to come, come to her, to wisdom, come to her. And wisdom promises or offers to, to satisfy their hunger and thirst for knowledge. But wisdom in the Old Testament only goes so far because her promise is that she will satisfy your thirst for knowledge, but she will also create a thirst. You will continue to hunger more, to thirst for more. But here is the Lord Jesus who is the fulfillment of wisdom, and He is saying to these people, Not with me. I satisfy the hunger and the thirst, period, full stop, forever. When they come to me, Jesus is saying, when they believe in me, they get it all. They get it all. And they get it now. He is the end point. He is the great I am. He is Yahweh. He is Jehovah. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of the covenant. Jesus states his premise, I am the covenant Lord. I am the one who spoke to Moses. I am the one who said to Moses, I am that I am. I am the one who gave Moses the manna. I made the manna for Moses as I made the bread that fed you yesterday. He states his premise, I am the bread of life. Secondly, he confronts their problem. He's got a lot more to say about the bread of life, but he puts that on hold for a moment. For he confronts these people who've been there yesterday, have seen him act in the fullness of his messianic power and authority, and who still don't believe. And he raises with them both their problem and many people's today's problem. I, I, had, a, I had a phone conversation this week, a conference call with a couple of ministers of churches similar to 10th, and we were talking about the dearth of converts 
that our churches in different locations in Chicago and Boston and here have seen in these respective churches. And this raises a question of why this should be. Since we're obviously holding out the word of life to men and women, what is it, why is it that people aren't becoming Christians in great numbers? And it's no use coming up with obsequious arguments because we're not seeker-friendly enough. Well, the Bible says there's no one who seeks after God. Or perhaps our talks are not sufficiently simple enough. But apparently the minds of men are darkened and they cannot understand the truth of God, no matter how simple you make the message. Or perhaps they're not culturally relevant enough. When in fact the Bible says people are dead in their trespasses and sins. Or perhaps they're not attractive enough because we make too many moral demands. But in fact the Bible says there is no one righteous. No, not one. No one is seeking after God. That's the Bible's description of the human heart. And here we find the Lord Jesus with that unique insight into the human heart. And he's talking to his fellow countrymen and he predicts their continuing unbelief. I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Earlier in chapter 1, he came to his own place and his own people did not recognize him. And here is the problem that is as it's stated here. They, these people, wanted what Christ had to offer where he prepared to do it, but they did not want Christ as he was in his terms. They said they want bread that brings eternal life, but they don't believe in the one who gives this bread or is this bread. Jesus puts it in bold terms, referring back to something he'd said earlier. I said to you, you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. He, he's playing with this word to see. They had seen, quite literally, they had seen him perform signs and wonders. They had quite literally benefited from what he had done. They'd not only seen it, they'd tasted it, they'd eaten it. But now you see, he's playing with this word to see. I said that you have seen me and yet you don't believe. They had not metaphorically seen him. They had not seen who he is. They had no true saving insight into who Jesus is. And because they had no true saving insight into who Jesus is, then they had no true and saving faith in him. These very Galileans who came looking for him. They were looking for him, but they were not coming to him. They were not coming to him for salvation. And this raises an enormous problem. One of the enormous problems of history has been the Jews' unbelief in their own Messiah. It is an enormous problem. And we feel the same tension today as we bemoan the numbers of those who will not even consider the things of God. And on the surface, it might look as if Jesus' mission in the world was a failure since he reveals God to us. His experience and his example tells us that there is nothing. There is nothing in the character and nature of God that needs, means that he needs to be 
in the majority. God does not have an ego problem. And you see that in Jesus. Jesus never had the majority influence in Palestine in his day. Even when he had periods of popularity, you read Luke's gospel, there are these periods of popularity, and then at some point Jesus stops, says to the crowds, Hey, you want to follow me? Come and die. Take your cross and follow me. And they all left him and fled. Jesus was not very good at church building. And I mean, he, he really was not what you would call the best evangelist that there's ever been from a purely human point of view. If he was, if he was looking for a job with Acts 39 or whatever it's called to, get, to do a church planting ministry, they'd say your, your track record isn't, isn't very good. You just get a few people following you and then you say something really dumb and they all leave. There is nothing in the character and nature of God that needs to be popular or predominant. Jesus makes that absolutely clear in his dealings with people in his own day. We struggle today with small numbers. Numbers genuinely are not important to God. There is nothing in him that feels nervous or disadvantaged. He is not panicking. He does not need us to get all worked up and lathered up in order to get him to do something that he's not able to do. He tells us to pray, not that we will change anything, but that we will be changed. Prayer is not telling God what we want him to do. Prayer is us getting into the mind of God and beginning to think like he thinks. So Jesus had to address the question, what does it mean to come to God? How does coming to God and faith in Christ work in bringing God's saving work to bear on a person's life, ensuring that they have the food that endures to eternal life? And when we listen to Jesus, we discover that, in fact, Jesus doesn't sound like a failure. He sounds absolutely confident. Absolutely confident. Here's what he says. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus is claiming to be in the closest collaboration with God the Father in working out their united will for the salvation of men and women in the world. And it's possible for us to parse out what Jesus is saying here. Listen, this is what he's saying. First, the Father has a people. He has people that he has chosen. Jesus traces the very existence of believers in the world to the Father's eternal purpose and plan. He has chosen these people before the foundation of of the world. That's repeated over and over again. John's gospel is in many ways all about the sovereign grace of God. God acts as he pleases. Later on in John's gospel, we find that he knows them by name. He has always known their name. He invented their name. He 
de demarcated their position in history, their place in life, their parents, their background, their experiences, their circumstances. He has determined it from the beginning of time. And he promises these people to his son before the world began. Later on in chapter 17, we find the father and the son, as it were, in this great conversation. We have an insight into that great covenant of redemption, the great pactus salutis, the great pact of salvation formed within the triune Godhead in which the father chooses a people. He promises them to his son. The son undertakes to do the work necessary for their salvation And the Father has a people. And the Father, secondly, the Father gives His elect to His Son. You notice that Jesus does not trace the effectiveness or otherwise of His work to His own abilities or inabilities as a speaker or miracle worker. He does not take the credit for attracting people or the blame for repulsing people. Rather, he looks to the Father. The Father has a people. The Father gives them to His Son. And Jesus notes this, that the Father gives but does not give Him all at once, these people. Rather, He gives these people to His Son over time. Uh, Herman Ritterboss puts it like this, the Father accompanies the Son in the execution of his mission from step to step, as it were, ever and again, bringing to the Son those who are his. He's been doing that throughout Christian history. He is doing that today. It doesn't matter what is against them coming to him. It doesn't matter what circumstances they are in. It doesn't matter how vile and vicious the religious context in which they are living at this moment. God has His elect, and He will give them to His Son. The relationship of the Father to Jesus is described in terms of a transfer of power in connection with the objects of the Father's love and the Father's giving. In this, John's Gospel, He gives His name, He gives His glory, He gives His authority, He gives His works, His words, even the cup of suffering he gives believers. He gives all that the Father, the Son asks for to the Son. The Father is in the giving business. He gives to His Son. And these gifts are not so much additions to Jesus. They're expressions of the unity and fellowship and of the united will of the Father and the Son from all eternity. And they're given to the Son as the mediator, the God-man, the man Christ Jesus. Father has a people. The Father gives these people to His Son. Thirdly, all who have been given to the Son will come to the Son. All that the Father gives me will come to me. This idea is further explained in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That statement is absolute. No one would ever come to Jesus apart from the will of God. Listen to these words by Josiah Condor. "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. 
this heart would still refuse thee had thou not chosen me. Thou from the sin that stained me hast cleansed and set me free of old. Thou hast ordained me that I should live with thee. T'was sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening mind the world had else enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart owns none before thee. For thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. Apart from the will of God, no one would ever come to Jesus. There is no will in any part of humanity that is willing enough to go to God through Jesus. Apart from the intervention of God, unbelief in the heart of men and women is invincible unbelief. And no matter how simple I make the gospel, no matter how attractive I make the message, no matter, no matter how relevant we make the church, it will not add one soul, not one soul will it add to the number of God's elect. Not one. Sadly, today, in some evangelical circles that even call themselves Reformed, we think that we can draw people to Jesus if we dumb down the Word of God, thinking in our folly that the simpler, the more effective. What we realize is that in our hearts we are Pelagians. Pelagius was a sadly British, I'm sure English, monk who devised this idea of free will and the ability of the, the natural man to, to reach out to God. And that was completely trounced by a church council in the early centuries of the church through the influence of Augustine and others. And uh, it, it was the church council agreed that salvation was by grace without any works through faith. And then as time went on, there came in a, a view that is a kind of semi-Pelagian view. That is, that it's not just my good works and it's not just God's work, but that I cooperate with God and I assist God, and by cooperating with Him together, together, God and I make the decisions that we make. Well, Jesus doesn't give us any room for that. No one can come to me. No one. Categorically, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws Him. That word to draw is used in the book of Acts of people, a mob, dragging the Apostle Paul through the streets of the city dragging him. No one can come to me unless the Father drags him, draws him to himself. But all that the Father gives me will come. You see, there are two aspects there. Do you see that? There's a divine aspect. From God's perspective, what's he doing? He's dragging us yelling and screaming and resisting into the kingdom of God, yet from our perspective, we come to Him. We are enabled to come to Him. In this present discussion, this was Jesus' big point, that whatever His hearers think of Him, however many or few His followers may appear to be at any time, or space in history or geography, the fact remains that there are those who will come to Jesus. 
those whom the Father has given to the Son, the Son will receive. Well, here's the fourth thing. All who come to the Son will be welcomed and kept. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The emphasis here is on all, all who come. Every elect person, every individual chosen by the Father will come to Jesus. Every elect person who comes to Jesus will be welcomed by Jesus. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Everyone, everyone who comes to Jesus, none will be cast out. There's the all and the every, every individual chosen, all individuals chosen by God who come to the Son, to the Son will be welcomed, recognized, recognized by Jesus and welcomed by Him. In, in the language of John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now again, you see, this does not negate the need for people to come to him. There's human responsibility. I say to you this evening, do you want to come to Jesus? Come to him. Do you want to become a Christian? Come to Jesus. You say, well, I've got to wait till I'm dragged. I'm telling you, do you want to come to Jesus? Already something's happened there. People do not naturally want to come to Jesus. It takes a supernatural thing to even make you willing to come to Jesus. It takes the work of God to make you want to come to Jesus. This is not something that just happens automatically. People do not automatically want to know God through Jesus Christ. And if that's happening to you, something wonderful is going on in your heart and mind. And I'm saying to you, come to Him. Come to Him. And if you know the Lord Jesus tonight, dear friend, rejoice in this. He knew you before He even made the sun and the moon and the stars. He knew you before He made the angels. He knew you before the foundation of the world. He knew you and He loved you. And He wants you, and He'll welcome you, and He'll keep you to everlasting glory. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never cast out. Well, the third thing in this passage is that Jesus elaborates His promise. He elaborates what He's just said. And yes, we, we three questions I think I'm going to ask of this last little bit here. You see, you just keep me going, and I lose track of time. Look how Jesus answers this. Where is he from? He says to them, he's descended from heaven and will come down, has come down to them and to us. And to the crowd who's before him, he, he's very present in what he says, I have come down from heaven. He's raising in their minds the picture of that heavenly being in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man who comes down from heaven and is given a kingdom and a people and worship by God the Father. Why has He come? He explains, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. 
I don't want you to think that I'm acting independently of God or I'm exercising an authority or a will that is independent of God. But even in my incarnate state, in my human flesh, I am here as a servant of God. I have come down to carry out the Father's will. Let, let me show you the flow of this passage. That for there. This is the reason. The Greek word is hote. Because. This is the reason why I will receive and welcome those whom the Father gives to me and will lose none of them. The reason is that I am committed to doing my Father's will rather than my own. And what was this work? Twice he enlarges on it. Verse 39, 40. This is the will of God that he's come to work out in practice. Look at it. This is the will of him. Verse 39. This is the will of my Father. Verse 40. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, believes in him, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here is the Son, echoing the will of the Father, committed to a full orb, far-reaching, all-embracing, eternal, heavenly purpose for the people the Father has given to him. Our Lord is contrasting the gift of manna in the wilderness. It was temporal, that is earthly, and temporary, that is not lasting. And on the other hand, Jesus is talking about himself as the bread of life, and that this life means, what this life means is parsed out in terms of eternal life, and being raised on the last day. Eternal life starts now. It starts right now. I have eternal life now. To die is gain. I go to be with Christ, which is by far the best, but it is looking forward. The ultimate expression is the last day. The last day. And on that last day, there's more to come that will blow my mind, transform my body, renovate this universe. Eternal life reaches its zenith. It's acme, it's ultimate, it's highest form on that day, the day of Christ's return, when I'm given a resurrection body like His glorious body. And be secure, I am secure. In one of the hymns we sing, that right now we're, the, the saints in heaven are more happy, but not more secure. The glorified spirits in heaven are more happy than we are, but they're not more secure than we are. Son of God will lose nothing of what the Father gives him, will raise it up on the last day. The Son is committed to doing the will of his Father. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The security of the believer rests on the faithfulness of the Son of God. Well, here's Jesus in conversation with these people. Can you believe that I was thinking that I could preach through to verse 51 tonight? And here we are at verse 40, and we're having to pause and stop right there. People can come to Jesus only by the Father's will and only through the Son's work. Jesus obeys the Father's will by welcoming and saving and keeping those who come to him. You struggle tonight thinking 
all the temptations and trials of life, will I, am I safe? Jesus says, you're safe. You're safe. Does that mean I'll never stumble? No. But he'll raise you up again. You're safe. You're safe. You have his guarantee. You have his promise. He will raise all that the Father gives to him on that day. Sons, we are by God's election who in Jesus Christ believe. By eternal destination, lasting life, we now receive. Father, will you please take your word, write it on our hearts, and give us great joy in believing, we pray. Amen.